Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323 660 1175. Thanks for your support and enjoy. Theme um, sentimentality, manufactured emotion, um, death, aging. It's really dogs. There's some dogs. Um, but, you know, the essays really, they, they cover a lot of different things. So, you know, there's, there's um, like I said, death, there's romance, wannabe lesbianism, uh, there's a chapter on that, there's a chapter on, on children, on, there's a chapter on not being a foodie, the overratedness of food culture. So, I guess this is just all by way of saying that if you don't like what I read now, that shouldn't keep you from buying the book, because it's really, it's all really different. So, and if you do like it, there are some things that are similar to it. So. <laughs> um, okay, so um, this is just a little bit, a little bit from an essay um, about nostalgia. I guess that's, that's what it's about. It's called Not What It Used to Be. My husband has been known to reminisce about his college years, often saying that the friendships he had then were deeper than any sense, that his highs were higher, his disappointments more shattering, his convictions more deeply felt. Last year, I finally made good on my promise, though possibly it was a threat, to have us sit down and watch The Big Chill. The iconic 1983 movie about a group of old college friends grappling with the fact that they are no longer impassioned students, but adult participants in late 20th century capitalism. I expected it to be painfully dated, but found it to have held up far better than I'd imagined. The Big Chill, of course, is the godmother of 30-something, the television series about the exact same types of people worrying about the exact same things. Together, they more or less defined the image of the yuppie, a label that now feels musty and lazy, but remains a template for the concept of socioeconomic upward mobility as an active, conscious gesture. Though I was only 13 when The Big Chill was released, and therefore mainly interested in the soundtrack, which featured Three Dog Nights' Joy to the World, known to my peers and me as Jeremiah Was a Bullfrog, 30-something premiered on network television the fall of my senior year in high school, a time when my primary interest was sloughing off the residue of youth and becoming a grown-up as quickly as possible. 30-something, true to its title, was about adults. It was about two married couples, Hope and Michael and Nancy and Elliot, and also about a handful of single people who were portrayed as some combination of earnest and quirky, but were usually looked down upon as immature and neurotic. The married adults with kids on the show were engaged in the juggling act, a national pastime in the 1980s, of raising young children and advancing their careers, and in one case, restoring their charming craftsman house. The single ones were interesting and impassioned, but also possessed of some flaw, workaholism, insecurity, authority issues, that made them their own worst enemies. (laughs) 
Many frequently wore sweatshirts bearing the names of their colleges, and, like the big chill characters, often wondered aloud what had happened to their younger, more hopeful selves. Because it was a television show, they were all really great-looking and dressed really well, though because it was the late 1980s, many of the sweaters had ugly geometric patterns, and the women's suits had huge shoulder pads. Many of us have unconscious disbeliefs about our lives, facts we accept at face value, but that still cause us to gasp just a little when they pass through our minds at certain angles. Mine are these, that my mother is dead, that the Vatican actually had it in itself to select a pope like Pope Francis, and that I am now older than the characters on 30-something. That last one is especially upending. How is it that the people who were, for me, the very embodiment of adulthood, who with their dinner parties and marital spats and career angst, represented the place in life I'd like to get to but surely never will, are on average six to eight years my junior? How did I get to be middle-aged without actually growing up? Luckily, some, even some of the most confounding questions have soothingly prosaic answers. On the subject of growing up or feeling that you have succeeded in doing so, I'm pretty sure the consensus is that it's an illusion. Probably no one ever really feels grown up, except for certain high school math teachers or members of Congress. I suspect that most members of the AARP go around feeling in many ways just as confused and fraudulent as most middle school students. You might even be able to make the case that not feeling grown up is a sign that you actually are, much as worrying that you're crazy supposedly means that you're not. My husband gave the big chill a B minus. He said he would have given it a C minus if not for Meg Tilly, who spent most of the movie in a leotard and tights, contorting her exceptionally lithe body into positions not possible for most human anatomies. He said the film struck him as a bunch of old people complaining. The characters are younger than we are, I said. No, they're not, my husband said. Yes, they are, I said. They're supposed to have graduated from the University of Michigan 15 years earlier. So, he said, we graduated 21 years ago. My husband is nostalgic for his college days. I, on the other hand, spent most of college waiting for it to be over so I could move to the city and work at an entry-level office job. (laughs) Believe me, I know how lame that sounds. Among my greatest sources of shame and regret is that I managed to have such a mediocre time at a place that is pretty much custom-designed for delivering the best years of your life. I'd like to say that I wasn't the same person back then that I later became and now am, but the truth is that I was the exact same person. I was more myself than at any other time in my life. I was an extreme version of myself. Everything I've always felt, I felt more intensely. Everything I've always wanted, I wanted more. Everything I currently dislike, I downright hated back then. People who think I'm judgmental, impatient, and obsessed with real estate now should have seen me in college. (laughs) I was bored by many of my classmates and irked by the contrived mischief and floundering sexual intrigues of dormitory life. I couldn't wait to get out and rent my own apartment preferably one in a grand Edwardian building on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. In that sense, I guess my college experience was just as intense as my husband's. I just view that intensity negatively rather than nostalgically, which is perhaps its own form of nostalgia. 
A little game I'd like to play is to look back on various critical junctures in my life and imagine what advice my older self might dispense to my younger self. The way I picture it, my younger self will be going about her business and my older self will suddenly appear out of nowhere like a goon sent in to settle a debt. I always imagine my older self grabbing my younger self by the collar or even shoving her in some manner. At first, younger self is frightened and irritated. (laughs) Older self speaks harshly to her, but a feeling of calm quickly sets in over the encounter. Younger self sits there wrapped as though receiving the wisdom of Yoda or of some musician she idolizes, such as Joni Mitchell. But older self is no Yoda. Older older self is stern and sharp. Older self has adopted the emphatic, no-nonsense speaking style of formidable women with whom she worked in countless New York City offices before deciding she never again wanted to work anywhere but her own home, a place where, over the years, she has lost a certain amount of people skills and has been known to begin conversations as though slamming a cleaver into a side of raw beef. Older self begins her sentences with listen and look. She says, listen, what you're into now isn't working for you. She says, look, do yourself a favor and get out of this situation right now. All of it, the whole situation. Leave this college, forget about this boy you're sleeping with but not actually dating. Stop pretending you did the reading for your Chaucer seminar when you didn't and never will. To which younger self will ask, okay, then what should I do? And of course, older self has no answer, because older self did not leave the college, did not drop the boy, did not stop pretending to have read Chaucer. And the cumulative effect of all those failures, or missed opportunities, blown chances, fuck-ups, whatever, is sitting right here, administering a tongue-lashing to her younger self, which is to say herself, about actions or inactions that were never going to be anything other than what they were. And at that point, the younger and older selves merge into some kind of floating blob of unfortunate yet inevitable life choices. At which time, I stop the little game and nudge my mind back into real time and try to think about other things, such as what I might have for dinner that night or what might happen when I die. <laughs> such, such is the pendulum of my post-40 thoughts. So I will stop there. Thanks. Um, So I'm so thank you. I'm so happy that um, that Bernard agreed to to talk to me. I'm such a fan, and he's a delightful person. Bernard Cooper is the author. Yeah, of the I'm gonna intro- Yeah, come on, Amy. Hold it. Bernard Cooper is the uh, is the author of a, the wonderful and celebrated memoir, The Bill from My Father, which you might be familiar with from This American Life, in addition to its book iteration. He's also the author of the wonderful and soon-to-be-celebrated memoir, My Avant-Garde Education, which is fantastic and will be out uh, in February of next year. He's the recipient of a Guggenheim grant and an NEA grant and has appeared in five volumes of The Best American Essays, which is five more than I have appeared in. (laughs) So, welcome Bernard Cooper. Thank you for coming out. Can people hear us if we have the microphones about here? Is that pretty good? Yeah. You need to be okay. Looks good. 
Um, it was really fun to hear you read that. And um, not only did I enjoy hearing it, I actually heard you read that once before, but the, the section that you read does something that so much of your work does that seems miraculous to me, which is it begins almost as a kind of cultural critique talking about 30-something and very slowly sort of nudges the reader deeper into feelings of remorse and ideas about aging, but it's done so gently and effortlessly. Um, I, I think for you know people who in, enjoyed that, there's, there's plenty of that in this book. Um, um, you always sort of move into areas that are unspeakable, in a sense, ideas that are very hard to bear, but you do so with such care and with such a light touch, it's, oh, it's thank you. really amazing. You should have seen the first drafts, though. <laughs> not, not, uh, not always the case. Um, so the writer Jeffrey Wolf, Tobias's, Tobias Wolf's brother, uh, once said that any writer who ha writes things with an autobiographical strain, uh, an autobiographical novel, a personal essay, a memoir, um, can never quite prepare him or herself for the sense of exposure when when a book with personal material comes out. Do, do you feel that, or do you feel protected, in a sense? Well, I think I'm protected because I don't see it... I don't see it as, as revealing myself as much as offering something and trying to be generous. I guess I've been writing about myself for so long and thinking about myself and being myself um, that I've kind of figured out ways of dealing with it um, and I will say that I, I write a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with me but this, the work that people always end up talking about is, is the very autobiographical work so I find it's funny somebody left a comment the other day it was like does Megan Dom ever write about anything other than Megan Dom and it's like well yes but nobody comments on it you know um I don't know. I think that I my goal with personal work is to establish an intimacy with the the reader. And I think you do that by sort of being being vulnerable but with, without being so so oversharing or not oversharing and not sharing but not oversharing. Um and and giving them something that's been processed because otherwise it's just I mean I've been talking about this a lot but you know it's it's confessing which I'm really right. actually not interested in right. doing. Yeah, it do, it doesn't seem like confessional work at all. In, in fact when I when I read the book which I I've read twice. Um, it, it reminded me of something Annie Dillard said, which is that she said when she writes about herself at the beach, she's really writing about the ocean, about the world beyond herself. And there's a way in which I think the best nonfiction writers are able to use themselves not as the subject so much, mm. but as a, a window through which to see the world. And I feel that again and again in your essays. Oh, thank you. Yeah, as as a lens or as a as a vehicle. I used to say I was using myself as a tool to think about larger ideas, but saying that doesn't sound good. I'm using myself. I'm a tool. I'm a tool. Um, 
Yeah, it, you know, it's it's funny because a lot, you know, there's so much personal writing out there, especially now. We're in this moment where there are a lot of personal essays, and they kind of appear. They some of them can appear very quickly after they were written in some cases, uh, and I think that readers. They they sometimes go into it expecting that they're going to get you know some sort of onslaught of very revealing, uh, uncomfortable making material. So um, I, I guess you know part of the reason I wanted to do an essay collection was that I wanted to be able to really take the time to write long pieces and kind of sprawl out and be able to rewrite them and rethink them and have an editor and, and really present the form um, in a in a formed way. Also, one of the experiences I had reading your book was was never that you were revealing too much, uh, never that it was confessional, but that um, there was a way. Well, first of all, it's there's always a balance. It's it's really sort of almost acrobatic to read one of the essays, which moves so smoothly between a view of the world outside the self and the self. And if there's anything uncomfortable um, and this gets back to the title too unspeakable it's not so much that the writer is sharing too much but that she's very carefully talking about things that most people are sort of loath to talk about or think about even that you know it, without presenting this at all as a grim book because my god <laughs> there are things that are so funny and wonderful in it but but there is a lot about death about aging about reconciling the present with the past which i think was part of what you read and um yeah i yeah you know it's it's funny the all of the essays were written over the last couple of years and they they haven't been published in any other magazines it's not like i am taking pieces that have appeared elsewhere and putting them putting them collecting them in the book they were all written specifically to be in a book in the company of each other. Um, And they covered stuff that I was thinking about in my late 30s and early 40s. So I guess the the themes and the subjects arose organically because I had a parent die. I I had my own experience with with this serious illness, Um, issues around whether or not to have children. These are things that come up. And so I think that a theme did emerge. Um, And in, in a way, it seems heavy i mean one of my one of my worries was that the, the book would just seem like a the total downer and i actually noticed on amazon they have it it was number one in grief and bereavement <laughs> yesterday <laughs> like oh yeah and the other titles it was so funny it was like chicken soup for the dying person's soul or something that was like number two <laughs> so, um yeah so there is some of that but i also i I mean, I like to be entertained when I write, and I like to be humorous and and poke fun at all sorts of things. So, um, I, I'm I'm hope I'm glad to hear that you think there's a balance because oh I my think god, there is. A- yeah. a- absolutely, and and I think the the balance is sort of is heavily on the side of. A kind of forgiveness or acceptance or lightness. I mean, it sounds sort of schmaltzy to use those words, but there is nothing suffocating or mm. hopeless about it, ev- even when you're dealing with things that are very hard to reckon with. Um, do, did the um, essays, ha- were you conscious of a theme as you were writing them? Were they written more as individual essays that you eventually began to think of as a book? You know, 
Um, for a long time, I was saying that the book was about sentimentality in American life, um, and <laughs> I don't know what kind of you know the react people would be like, hmm, you know, that's that's interesting. Um, I, the the book started out with um, a, an essay called Matricide. It's it's the first essay in the book. It's not about killing your mattress. It's um, <laughs> it's about. Uh, it's about my mother's death, um, which happened to it, within the space of about a year and a half. My my grandmother died, my mother died, and I got very sick and almost died. Um, my my grandmother and and my my mother and her mother had had a very toxic relationship, and and my mother and myself had a really complicated, fraught relationship. So there was the legacy of of mother daughter relations in the family was was not um, a, a particularly positive one, and my my mother actually ended up um, getting diagnosed with cancer the same week that her own mother died. And, yeah, my grandmother died at 91, and my mother ended up dying at 67. But, you know, there was a lot that was really tragic about that, but one of the things that was the saddest about it, and just the most awful, and, and only, you know, us, we in our immediate family really understood this, was that my mother did not have one second on earth where she was healthy and free of her own mother. Mm. And that is something that is unspeakable. It was it was really the salient feature of the year, in a way. It wasn't so much that... It was not only that my mother was sick and suffering, but that she knew that she was going to die. And her mother had just died. She had just been freed of her mother, and then she was going to go. And so then... And then when I got sick and almost died... It you know it occurred to me wow like it's this trifecta of, of 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 tragedy. None of us are allowed to be here. None of us are allowed to be on this earth w- without our mothers who we can't stand. Um, so and that's the kind of thing you can't talk about. And, and and another big big theme in the book is this idea of the redemption narrative. And when you're caring for someone who's sick, you're supposed to have these epiphanies and you're supposed to have closure and you're supposed to go through a change. And the person who's dying is supposed to report back all these wise, deep thoughts that they've had, and the caregiver's supposed to, you know, you're supposed to share these wonderful moments. And and if you don't have that, you, you're not supposed to admit that. Um, so so a lot of what was in Matricide had to do with all these, all of these issues. And it was a really, really, it was, it's, it's the, definitely the most personal, sensitive, brutal, potentially um, polarizing piece that I have ever written. Um, and it took me forever to write it. I started it and I put it away for, you know, almost a year and then went back to it. Um, and then when I finally got it, I thought, okay, well, I, I, if I can write this, I can write, I can write anything. It's all downhill from here. So, um, you know, I wrote a few more and then I said, you know, I'd really, I'd really like to do another essay collection. And my agent was like, um, do you have any other ideas? And and um, I said, no, I don't. I have no other ideas. Um, actually, that's something I wanted to ask you also, which is that there's this kind of a prejudice against the very idea of a collection of essays right now in the literary marketplace, whatever the hell that is. Yeah, but people love them. <laughs> yeah, and yet people can't get enough of them, it seems. Also, I mean, it, it, if you... The idea that there's a, a bias against a collection of varied essays goes against the whole idea of writing an essay, which is to explore 
things that interest you when they interest you and to move on and to keep inquiring and keep you know awake to the world and what's going on in one's life yeah i see the essay as a suggestion you know i'm just i'm just inviting the reader to think alongside me as i work work ideas out and i see my newspaper column the same way i'm not saying hey this is my opinion i want you to come over to my side and you know you're a moron if you don't agree with me sometimes it's just uh, sometimes i don't even know that i agree with me i should not have said that it's my my, <laughs> my boss is here <laughs> sorry <laughs> i don't stand by anything i say but it's it's more just like i'm saying to the i'm saying to the reader why don't we just think about it this way? Just humor me, and and let's try to work this out. I'm really not. Um, it, it's. I'm not about. Um, you know, laying down the gauntlet or anything like that. So with the longer essays, yeah, it's definitely a process of. Um, you know, let's let, let's just kind of come along on this on this journey as we as we figure all this out right. and maybe there's no answer i mean there are a lot the thing is the, the book is really if there's any sort of um you know conclusion is that there is no conclusion this idea of closure is such a forced notion i i love the idea that you ch- you know are a champion of the notion that there is no closure which is such a huge sometimes i i think oppressive myth in this culture that there are certain steps you can take to absolutely overcome something or to rid yourself of you know certain thoughts or longings or disappointments and um, again and again in the essays you 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 never take the easy way and and you always admit to a certain kind of ambivalence mm-hmm. or ambiguity and the fact that there's no easy answer and it makes this book's so much more rigorous and interesting to me than any book that would set out with the intention of imparting some sort of message or, or some rule for how to behave or how to respond. Oh, that's to good things. to hear. I, there was, I did notice somebody, <clears throat> there was a reviewer who said, you know, these are, they're okay, but they don't, they don't, uh, they don't end. The, the problem is that none of them, <laughs> we don't, we don't, they have no answers. They don't end. And I thought, well, that's exactly the point of the book. So I guess you've done me a great favor. <laughs> yeah. Also not to, you know, lay it on too thick, but one of the things I really like about the way I think without exception every essay in the book ends is they end like short stories which is mm. that everything is not tied up with a big bow but but actually there's room to speculate there's still some you know friction from having read about these different ideas mm. and having read from the, you know the point of view of someone who doesn't seek or expect easy answers is such a bracing thing and and even though uh, probably i i would imagine that you you know would get some odd reactions to admitting certain ambivalences about caretaking your your mother when she was dying um there are lots of things in the book that you just you know you don't buy things hook line and sinker there there are essays about childlessness uh, about um, even the essay about not being a foodie somehow <laughs> I, which is one of the funniest things I've ever read by oh, the really? way yes I was yes um, that and maybe a supposedly fun thing by David Foster wow but but um, I, I it, there's something so fantastic about being in the presence 
of a writer who's companionable, but not in the sense of wanting to you to agree with them, but companionable because they're telling you how difficult. I think you have to be honest. I, I guess I see it as a conversation with the reader, and in the same way that if you have lunch with a friend and and they're not sort of being vulnerable with you or, or being honest, it's kind of a not satisfying exchange. You know, you, you know, you ha- there's there's the kind of social exchange where it's perfectly fine and you know and interesting in various ways, but then there's the one where you're actually hearing something that that not only makes you empathize with your friend, but makes you realize something about yourself and, mm-hmm. and feel less alone. And maybe your friend has articulated something that you haven't been able to articulate or that you've been afraid to. Um, and that's what I try to do. I really, I re- it's, it's not that I'm being shocking or saying things that will get a reaction. Or you know, Sometimes people say, oh, you're so brave. And I think, mm, it's, not, it's not brave. It's just, I, I'm not, it's, it's boring otherwise. Like, when, when, is, why don't you just be honest? I just see it as, as being honest. Because really, if if a if a nonfiction writer, especially writing in the first person, is not totally honest, what is the point? It's just yeah. like PR, right? Right, right. Yeah, no, there there is a sense of bravery in it. Although I I know that sometimes when people say, "Oh, you've been so brave," it's like that's it. Be... I know you you could be a horrible writer, but this is like <laughs> right, you're, you're so brave, right? <laughs> you told the truth badly, yeah. but yeah, you told right, it, right? You know. But um, you know, I I didn't I meant to ask you if it was okay to talk about this. So I hope it's okay, and you don't have to. But I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit about um, the book that you're sort of thinking about and working on now, um, and also the anthology that you're working on. Wait, those are two. Those are two different. Yes. Books. What, what yeah. book did I tell you I was working on? Uh, oh, 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 yeah. oh. Um, yeah, well, the book that I uh, that I say that I'm working on now uh, <laughs> has to do it has to do with dying again. I I, I became really interested um, in hospice, and I and I became interested in people who work around the dying. There's a lot of books about. Um, you know the dying process if if you are dying, but what if what about the people who actually um, are attracted to that kind of work and and are are compelled to do it you know i was do, I was um doing some reporting recently uh, and I was down um, having a meeting with a with a hospice team and there was you know there were about twenty people and somebody showed up. Uh, as a volunteer, this guy wanted to volunteer, and he was like this young guy in his twenties. He was in a band, kind of like rock and roll guy, and he wanted to to volunteer with dying children and help them write songs. And I thought that is really interesting. Like of all the work that you could do, like you could just go down to you know a twenty six l a and be groovy with everybody else and you know and, and tutor the kids in echo park but um he wanted to do this and i and I thought what what draws people to this? There are people who go you know travel to India to work in in mother teresa's hospice, and that's like their vacation so this is in the very preliminary stages of 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 that, and I probably shouldn't even be talking about it because it's like you know. It's not. It doesn't exist as any sort of official project. Um, so yes. So that I, I guess I'm in this mode where I'm interested in. I'm 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 into death. So, but you know who isn't? It's got it's got something something for everyone. And yeah. And the anthology. 
Um, <laughs> so I, I have edited, I've um, put together an anthology of um, essays by 16 different writers about uh, the choice not to have children. And it's going to come out in the spring, and it's called Selfish, Spoiled, and Self-Absorbed. <laughs> 16 writers on the decision not to have kids. And um, it's really great. They're all original pieces, and they've written them for me. I'm, I'm really proud of them. They're great. They're a great group. So. I also want to say that the essay that that deals with, um, well, the foster care system mm -hmm. and being childless by choice in this book is is incredibly compelling. Thanks. Um, so I think maybe uh, we should turn it over to audience. Yeah. How much time do we questions? have? Is it time for for audience questions? Okay. No, the do the dog doesn't have a question. <laughs> Did you have, sir? No? Oh, come on. <laughs> yes. Can we ask for an encore on the reading? I love the reading. You do? Uh, everyone's like, oh, no. <laughs> I should have asked a question. <laughs> really? Do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You know, I have a weird, um, I don't know. Does anybody, are you leaving? Oh. I'll stay for the reading. I don't know. This might just be too inside. Does anybody get the Title IX catalog? Do you know what that is? Do you know what that is? Yes. Okay. I'm going to tell you. Don't worry. I'm going to tell you what it is. So it's like a women's um, sportswear catalog that they and they they feature like real models, um, and it's really. So I have a I have an essay in here called Honorary Dyke, and um, it's it's a it's about a lot of things, but it's it's really about. Um, this phenomenon where there's a certain kind of straight woman who is very drawn to a particular aesthetic that is associated with lesbians, and it comes out of the sort of extreme... Well, I talk about how it comes in some ways out of the extreme kind of, you know, hyper-feminization of our culture currently, and, and, um, and, and you know, the, the, this, this sort of, you know, Kim Kardashian extreme... You know, we've gotten away from the kind of 70s. Everyone was kind of a little bit lesbian in the 70s, you know what I mean. Um, so you guys are like, I'm leaving right now. I'm totally offended. So um, anyway, so this, so it's a very over-the-top piece. It's a, it's a, it's a humorous piece. Um, and I talk in the end about the, um, the Title IX catalog because I really think it's like a lesbian allegory. Um, you know, they're selling uh, uh, sports bras and such, but it's really, it's just so much more than that. Um, so I'll just read for, you asked for it, so I'm going to read a little bit of that. <laughs> Uh, named for the history-making federal law allowing women equal access to sports in schools, the Title IX company has a feminist bent and a prep school meets fish concert aesthetic. <laughs> its models aren't typical models, but rather real women whose bodies are muscular rather than skeletal and whose faces, though endowed with well above average bone structure, are also endowed with the kinds of slightly crooked smiles and traces of crow's feet that would normally be photoshopped into a oblivion. They have strong shoulders and ripped abs, and best of all, brief biographical profiles, perversely presented in the vein of Playboy Playmate squibs. 
Steph is a professional climber, base jumper, and author. How does she unwind? She likes to clean things. Things on the order of antique auto parts, mind you, not kitchen floors. Nico, pictured hula hooping in a flowered halter dress, is a mom whose special skills include uphill battles. Yazzie is a business owner who drives an 84 Volkswagen bus and is an avid practitioner of the Brazilian martial art dance music hybrid capoeira. As they model the fleece jackets, skorts, sports bras, and dresses that come with names like tomboy wrap dress, dauntless dress, and excellent dress, the phantom dyke-centered narratives play out in charmingly allegorical fashion. I, I coined this idea of the phantom dyke, which is like the sort of like inner, inner lesbian and in, in otherwise presumably straight women. And I'm, I am, I'm talking about myself, by the way, so this is, you know... No, you got to implicate the narrator. Um, there's Allison, semi 